Welcome to the Voices of Freedom podcast. This is our very first episode, so welcome. Um, depending on how it goes, it might be our last episode, who knows, but, but I hope you'll stick around. Uh, we have a great interview for you today. This one is with Lewis Bucky Burris. It was conducted in uh, Yorktown, Virginia on November 11th of 2019, and the reason I decided that uh, we would um, feature this as our very first podcast because this interview with Lewis uh, Burris has gotten a lot of feedback. It's a very popular interview that we've done. Um, he's a very interesting character with a very interesting story. Um, but other than that, you know, it's hard to say really what uh, what really resonates with people. But this one seemed to, so I thought it'd be a great interview to begin our podcast with. Uh, Lewis became a Green Beret. Um, he would do two tours in Vietnam. Uh, and then eventually he would become, after attending the British SAS course, a founding member of Delta Force. Now, when I asked him that question, I said, you were a founding member of Delta Force, and he said, no, um, there's only one founding member of Delta Force. Um, so he kind of downplays it a little bit, but he was an original six, one of the original six members. So that's, a, uh, that's quite a, a, an accomplishment. Um, as a member of Delta Force, he would uh, participate in Operation Eagle Claw. If you don't know what that is, and a lot of people don't, Operation Eagle Claw was the failed attempt to rescue the Iranian hostages, and that would uh, result in a helicopter crash in the desert that would kill several crew members. Um, he would go on in the mid-80s to participate in Operation Urgent Fury, which was the rescue of students in Grenada. Uh, and he would have several other um, interesting career, uh, interesting things happen in his career. So without further ado, I bring you this interview with uh, Lewis Bucky Burris. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about our project, the Voices of Freedom Project, please check out our website at www.americansinwartime.org. Sir, if I could get you to tell me what your name is, where were you born, and what year were you born in? My name is Lewis Bucky Burris. Okay. I was born in Richmond, Virginia. What war or campaign did you participate in? I, I went to Vietnam a couple of times, and okay. I went to Grenada for a day, and a couple of days, actually, and okay. the Iranian desert for one night. Okay. That's about it. What branch of service were you in? Army. Army, okay. Do you have any other veterans in your family? My father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my daughter, uh, my brother-in-law, my niece, my brother, my late brother. So we're pretty military-oriented family. It's always what year did you join the Army? 1965. And why did you join? I was selling furniture. I was a sales manager for Bassett Furniture Industries, and I was shaving one morning after I already had a degree. And, you know, I listened to the radio. And it's something about another young Marine being killed okay. in Vietnam, and I thought, couldn't even watch the guy finish shaving. So I went to the chairman of the board, told him I had to go see what it was about. His name was Bob Spillman. And Spillman says, son, you go for two days, two weeks, or two years, you'll always have a job here. I was a platoon leader in the 82nd in Normandy. 
So that was pretty good motivation to, yeah. to get me started. Okay. And you obviously had heard about Vietnam and were following. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, yeah, I was, you know, following pretty closely, right. actually. I had, had some friends because I would, well, at, at the time I was 23 and I'd had some okay. friends younger than I who had gone to Vietnam. Uh, so for that reason, I had quite an interest in it. Right. And why did you choose the branch of the service you chose? Well, my dad was a soldier. Okay. Uh, I went to the recruiter in El Paso, Texas, which my, that's where my dad was stationed at the time. Okay. And uh, said I'd like to join the army, and they said something like, "What do you want to be, a rocket scientist or something?" I said, "No, I want to be an infantryman." They, okay. they nearly tied me in the chair so I wouldn't get away <laughs> in '65 because that was uh, a big thing. And then they, right. I took the battery of tests and did all right on the OCT score, and they said. You've got a college degree. How'd you like to be an officer? I said, sounds good to me. So I went to basic AIT and then straight to infantry OCS at Fort Benning after that. Okay. And how long after that were you? Uh, did you find your way to Vietnam? I, uh, I happened to make distinguished graduate out of OCS, and they allowed twelve of us, second lieutenants, okay. newly commissioned second lieutenants, uh, go to special forces because there weren't enough first lieutenants and captains, which was a normal prerequisite to, okay. to go. There weren't enough of them volunteering, so they took a bunch of second lieutenants. Twelve of us went, they kept six of us, and uh, went to six special forces group, long since deactivated at Fort okay. Bragg, and then from there to Vietnam, then back to the same company in the sixth, then back to Vietnam, the second tour of the same team I'd been in the first tour. What, what, when you say special forces, what does that mean? What distinguishes special forces from any other? Well, we're special, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, special forces really, uh, uh, I hate the, the terms like elite and all that sort of thing, right. but it, it's, it's uh, the prerequisites are very high and you have to be highly motivated. Okay. Uh, the qualifications are such that you end up with uh, junior NCOs and officers doing the job that in regular units uh, field grade officers do. You right. know, for example, I was in the, the 5th Mobile Strike Force in okay. Vietnam, and uh, as a first lieutenant, I commanded 550 bayonets, and then three, my three rifle companies were commanded by two E7s and an E6, so we had Montagnard Hill tribesmen as were our troops. And we fought all over the all over Vietnam, all four corps areas. Right. It was pretty heady stuff for us. Right. What What was the mission of, of your unit? It was to react to to uh, special forces camps. There were sixty odd special forces camps, mostly along the border, with Laos and Cambodia. Okay. And any time any of them was either under attack or imminent attack, uh, the mobile strike force, Mike force for short, would be called in to to react to that. For example, September of 68, I can remember the mission came down, hey, the NVA have the North Hill at Duclop, go take it back. I mean, that was that, you know. Right. So it was, uh, it was pretty exciting stuff. Now, you say Special Forces, was this Green Berets? Yes, okay. yeah, Green that's, Berets. that's become the common term ever right. since right. Barry Sadler sang the song, <laughs> wrote and sang the song. Right, okay. Um, 
What was your impression when you first got over there? Well, I thought everybody uh, was out to kill me personally. Right. You know, uh, that court that that dissipated pretty quickly. Uh, but I, I was really favorably impressed with my comrades in arms. I mean, uh, you know, these are still the best guys on the planet. The ones that are still alive are are still great friends of mine. We right. keep in touch, and it's it was. Uh, I think the quality of the men with whom I was allowed to serve is what struck me more than anything right. else. And your first tour was how long? At, uh, Ten months and twenty-two days, I think it was the okay. first tour. What's the What's the tempo like? How How busy are you, are your unit? Well, it it, it depended. Uh, I went in late '67, and okay. we were doing some training operations. We were increasing the size because we were the countrywide reaction force. Each okay. core area had its own smaller uh, reaction force, but we were countrywide guys. So we were increasing in size to six companies, I think it was at the time, doing okay. some training. Right. Uh, occasional gunfights, uh, and then along came the Tet Offensive, and we really got busy, and stayed busy for really up through the summer of 68. How many guys were in your unit? Well, there were about 21 Special Forces soldiers, okay. uh, three officers, I think it was, and 16, 18 NCOs. Three NCOs with each company of about 130 mountain yards, hill tribesmen, that we recruited, trained, and, and led in the field. Uh, so my battalion, as I said, had about 550 troops in it. I was an eight attachment commander, parentheses, first battalion, fifth mobile strike force command. Right. How long is the training to do what you did? It's longer well, than it's, the normal. Yeah, it's, it is longer, but you know, during during the Vietnam, during Vietnam, because of that shortage of, right. of officers, uh, the, the officers, there used to be two separate courses, an officer course and, a, and an enlisted course. It's now, it's, they, they both go through the same course. Mm -hmm. But at, we had uh, a, a shortened course because uh, they were so desperate to get right. Some, right. some guys. Because it was bad for one's career, not to mention one's health, to, to be in special forces in those days. So uh, we, we left the training not fully qualified. Went to our parent units, then we had to learn, you know, uh, what we, what we had missed in the right on-the-job on training. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Okay. When, was, when you when you're out in the field, um, how how long are you? Typically, how long are you gone before you, well, you come back? That's a, that's a good question because it varied from overnight sometimes. Right. I mean, my first real fight was an overnight. Then I was back, you know, the next day. Right. But then in uh, 1970, we went to I-Corps and were gone for something like six weeks, which I'm told, I don't know for sure, was the longest Special Forces operation of, uh, of the war. Okay. But uh, yeah, so it really varied. It depends on how long it took to get the job done. You know, sometimes just showing up, the enemy would disappear. Right. But usually uh, we, had to, we had to fight and uh, clear them out and run them off.
We hope you are enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, a 501c3 nonprofit. Our mission is to capture and preserve the wartime stories and experiences of Americans, both veterans and military. If you'd like to help us with that mission, please consider donating. To find out more or to donate, go to www.americansinwartime.org. Tell me about your first time in combat. First my time first time in combat. My first time in combat was in a place called Zincon in Kanawha Province, and I was, I went with one of the the new companies of the of this increased size that we had. Right. Uh, to reinforce, there was a an A team responsible for the security around the Triang, which is where Group Headquarters was. In fact, that's where my kid brother eventually ended up. But they. Uh, they had ambushed some guys and bit off more than they could chew, so they called us to go out and uh, call for reinforcements. And I, I was really along as a strap hanger uh, with with the 8th Company commander, an E-7, and his guys. And uh, but we got on the ground, found them a little more quickly than we intended to, and uh, half an hour later, I was the last round eye standing. So it was a pretty good baptism of fire. I got the three other round eyes evacuated. One to come out, my team leader said, you know, because I was scared shitless. Excuse my French. But uh, he said, no, hang in there, boy. So I did. You know, that it disappeared. The fear did. And I thought some of the things I had done that day, like, you know, shit, they can't get me. You know? I don't know why I worried about it, because they can't get my ass. Use the term round eye. What does that refer to? Oh, uh, that's the, the Americans. Right. Yeah. Versus almond eyed. Right. To put it in the uh, politically accepted thing. Right. <laughs> so you do one tour in Vietnam. No, two. For, or the first tour in Vietnam, yeah. I'm sorry. Then then you come back stateside? I went back to, to B Company. So, well, I got out of the Army, actually. Oh, you did get out of the Army? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I. You know, there were there were some leadership problems that right. I had seen, and uh, you know, there was some things I didn't like, so I got out. And in fact, I uh, taught typing. I never typed a word in my life, <laughs> but I was a substitute teacher initially. Okay. Well, because I, I was either going to go to grad school or going to work for the CIA in Laos, working with the same kind of guys I had. Right. But a couple of months after that, I thought. You know, I missed this, missed the guys, missed the stuff. Went up to the military personnel center in Alexandria, because I was a reserve officer. Right. Said I'd like to go back on active duty and go back to Vietnam. And they said, sure. Well, you know what? What uh, unit you want to go to? I said, back to Fifth Special Forces Group. And they said, oh no, you can't do that. It's bad for your career. I said, oh, okay, <laughs> I'll see you. Got up to leave. Right. They said, no, wait a minute. <laughs> so. Uh, I ended up going, actually, I decided while I was back the second time with the sixth group that I wanted to make it a career. So I called Military Personnel Center and said, hey, second thought, send me to a conventional unit because, you know, I know that if I stay in Special Forces, I won't have a career because that's the way it was in those days. And uh, they said, well, we already got you on a levy to fifth group, but put down, it's because you're on multiple tours, put down what you 
you know, the, the, you'll, you'll get five choices of the of the assignment you want, and you may not get the first, but you'll probably get the second. So I put 101st, 173rd, 1st Cav, 11th ACR for some reason, and Special Forces. Within an hour, I had orders back to Special Forces. So I get down to the... Your fifth choice. <laughs> yeah. So I get down to group headquarters, went to the adjutant, handed my, my paper in and said, uh, he comes out and said, well, by this time I'm a captain, because you only stayed second lieutenant one year and first lieutenant one year that at that stage of the war. Okay. So he said, well, congratulations, Captain. You're the new public affairs officer. And I said, in a pig's ass, I'm a public <laughs> affairs officer. I'm going back to the same team. I know they have a, a, they had an officer who got bit by a spider of all things and got medevaced. So I know there's a vacancy. I'm going over there, send me some orders, and that's the way I got back to my team. Many of the same NCOs, mm -hmm. most of the same Montagnard troops, so it was uh, like being home. Right. Now, how does your role change with the advance in rank? Well, it, it actually didn't change any because when I was a first lieutenant, I was holding a captain's assignment, Okay. you know, as, a, as an A detachment commander. And that's the same thing I did. I was the ops officer part of the time, a loggy part of the time. But I got my old battalion back right. at the same rank. So it really just had a little more experience and got paid a few more bucks right. for it. But right. all in all, it was still the same. And, and had the mission changed? No. From the second tour, same same mission? Same mission. Countrywide reaction forth right. for the Special Forces camps. Are there any changes, anything that was different? Yeah, you know, I used to gauge, that's an interesting question, because I used to gauge uh, the mood of the nation, of this country. Right. Well, let, let me back up one with that. After the Tet Offensive, the, the, the NVA came to Natrang, among other cities, mm -hmm. and that was our base camp was across the airfield, Natrang. And we got a call early on, in fact, we were out on the sandbags to watch the fireworks, because, you know, it was a truce. Right. And the, the South Vietnamese, we knew, would be firing tracers up in the air and fireworks going off yeah. and all that. So we went out, got a couple of beers, went out on the sandbag to watch them. <laughs> and that just sure enough, just before midnight, they started this. And then it died down a little bit. And then the tracers started getting more vertical. <laughs> and green ones among them. And we said, oh, heck, about that time the siren went off, we got the call to go down there. We, and we did. We spent about... 36 hours kicking their asses we uh, with a lot of Air Force help uh, destroyed the 18th BNVA battalion and a regiment actually one of their battalions and uh, and some of their others I mean we just kicked their butts to the point that I recall writing a letter home and saying hey you know we got this thing won now we, they came out they showed up we, we handed them their asses Right. We're, I'll probably be home, if not by Christmas, then, you know, I mean, by, by summer, then certainly by next Christmas. Right. I mean, home by Christmas has always been there, you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later, we get the Newsweeks and uh, Time magazines from the States, and it somehow this what we considered a damn good victory that we had, that we had a, a terrible blow we had, had dealt the NVA and the Viet Cong. Somehow, uh, then it was turned around so that we had lost somehow. Right. When that's not the case at all. 
we kicked their asses. Right. And, you know, ask General Jap. Well, he's <laughs> dead now, but he before he died said, yeah, they had us on the ropes. But uh, yeah, so that changed. But then another thing that I used to do was gauge as a because I went through San Francisco International four times, going over the first time, coming back the first time, going over the second time, coming back the second time. The first time in my cute little green beret and blouse boots, uh, I couldn't buy a drink, you know. The guys were buying me drinks and all this stuff. That was in, in uh, late summer of 67. And then the fall of 68, I go home and, uh, you know, people weren't buying me drinks, but I could see I could buy a drink. Right. When I went back in 69, uh, you know, you finally have to say to the bartender, hey, can I have a drink down here? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then when I came back in 1970, it literally was the way that, uh, the worst way that I've heard people describe it. I mean, I, I was called a baby killer. Nobody spat on me. Right. I think maybe they, I was lean and mean in those days. I think maybe they <laughs> <laughs> knew that would probably be a bad idea. But it was. I mean, that the the way the the mood of the country had changed from '67 to '70 was remarkable. Uh, fortunately, you know, I had a great family, uh, great friends with whom you know they were comrades at arms that I had served with before. Or had, some of them came. One of them actually came back. One of my best friends, whom I talked to yesterday, actually okay. came back on the same airplane I did after the after our first tour. Right. So, you know, still I was still surrounded by the, with the best people in the world, but man, when you go outside to, you know, some urban area right. or turn on the television news and see the, the sort of demonstrations that were going, I thought, you know, that's not us. You know, what are you talking about? Right. You know, I was thinking, think of my friend Sam Coots, my late friend now, and during the Tet Offensive, I put him in for Silver Star. One of the reasons being, uh, there was a street being raked with machine gun fire, and there were a couple of kids across the street who were cowering, and Sam ran across there, shielded them one at a time with his body, and brought them across the street to safety. He did that twice, and I thought, you know, that's that's the kind of people we were. Right. You know, that's the that's the kind of guys who inspired me to to, to try to do the same sort of thing. So. Don't give me this bullshit about baby killers. Right. When you guys were there, whether it be the first tour or second tour, were you aware of what was going on in this country as far as the anti-war sentiment? Well, as I said, you know, that after the Tet Offensive, when we thought we'd right. kicked their butts, then we uh, then we came to find out somehow they 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 somebody determined right. that we had lost. Right. How, how does that shape your mood? Or well, you know, it, it makes you, it, it's a shame because you see, the, I see, I think the same sort of, sort of thing that after that, that, that is starting to, to reoccur, and that is that there's a, a gap between the military and the civilians that, that, that they're sacrificing for, the ones who are paying their taxes, and, you know, the ones who should be worth it. And sometimes, you know, uh, uh, General Mattis recently said in a, in a great speech that uh, he said, you know, next time somebody tells you th 
thanks you for your service, you should say, well, thank you for being worth it. Right. And, uh, you know, that that spirit has been there through, through since 9-11, uh, through the global war on terror until fairly recently. And now it's, uh, it, it seems to me that there's a split occurring again between between the military and civilians. Part of it, of course, is the fact that there's no draft. Yeah. So you have a, a, a whole segment of society that has, has no uh, money in the game, so to speak. Right. You know, there's no kid, they, they don't have to worry about their kid yeah. getting his ass shot off if he, right. doesn't, if he doesn't want to, right. to uh, accept that kind of lifestyle, so. Um. There, you fought, there was two types of troops the Vietnamese had: there were regular army guys and Viet Cong. What was the difference you saw as far as you mean the NVA and the VC? Yeah, the NVA and the VC. Yeah. What, what was the? Could you tell the difference when you're yes. fighting these guys? Yeah. What was the difference? You, well, the, the the main difference was the the NVA were more professional and better organized and fought in in units as opposed to the Viet Cong, who would literally were. Uh, Guerrilla warriors, you know, right. they, 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 there were there were Viet Cong units, but they were there were sapper units and, and this, and it was, yeah, it was much different. In fact, I can remember my uh, uh, the boss I had later, a guy named Charlie Beckwith, who, the guy who founded the Delta Force. Mm -hmm. I can remember seeing an interview with him before I ever met him, actually, when he was he uh, had commanded the reaction force that went to play me which was at the beginning of the Yadrang Valley campaign. Okay. And he was being interviewed by ABC or somebody, and he said, yeah, you know, something about the South Vietnamese soldiers didn't, hadn't done them too well. And the guy said, well, what about the North Vietnamese? He said, oh, you know, I, I'd love to have 200 of those guys. They're the best damn soldiers <laughs> I've ever seen. A word to that effect. It was right. pretty, pretty amazing, but, uh, and, but probably true. Yeah. Certainly from his perspective. What, what, what were some of the challenges that you guys faced, the guys on the ground, you know? Yeah, we, uh, the worst, I mean, there were the normal things, everything right. from leeches to hunger to, uh, I can remember that long operation in I-Corps in 1970, very mountainous in I-Corps, of course, up in the, near the DMZ. Right. And we were walking a lot of hills, covering a lot of territory. And we we ate what the Indians ate, which was a couple of bags of rice a day with one of uh, with a little supplement to put on top of it, one of five uh, menus: shrimp and shrimp and mushroom. That was my favorite. Beef, which was this really rancid sort of beef. Right. Uh, fish, which were dried anchovies, actually. And then there was mutton that you could barely chew through, and then sausage. Number five PR was sausage. We liked right. that. But we get a daily can of mackerel from Okinawa uh, with for for each person with those right. rations. That was where the protein was, you know. Well, the damn NVA or, or VC or somebody sank the ship from <laughs> Okinawa in Saigon Harbor, so we didn't get to that whole operation. We had no canned mackerel, and it was just tearing us up. I went down to like 170 pounds wow. from 182, I think, when it started. But, yeah, legs burning, you know. You have that sort of deprivation. But the worst deprivation was 
being second guessed by commanders at 5,000 feet, you know, right. flying in a helicopter 5,000 feet up and saying, you know, Burris, uh, move your left flank over, you know, and take care of that, whatever's going on over there, you know. That's, that's when we'd say, say again, sir, say again, <laughs> zero six. Say again, you're coming in garbled and broken, nothing heard out, you know, and go ahead and do what you knew was right. But, right. But yeah, that was a that was a challenge. You have time now to look back on Vietnam. What are what are your thoughts? Good, uh, bad, or indifferent? Yeah, well, I guess the the most amazing thing is as we speak right now, mm -hmm. November of nineteen of twenty nineteen, my forty seven year old Vietnamese son is driving here from California to come live with his father. I didn't know of his existence until he was 47 years old. Wow. He's 48 now. So it means a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, he's married to a young Vietnamese woman, just got her green card, fortunately. Uh, and it's a beautiful country. I'm, I can remember looking on Google Earth even years ago, uh, early the 21st century. This place that we used to go hand grenade fishing just south of the Trang. And <laughs> used to run operations up on this mountain. There's a place we call the Coconut Grove. There's a nice little beach there, and we go down with a little bit of security, and right. fish with hand grenades, and have a little cookout. That is where the, I think, 2008 Miss Universe pageant was held. There's a, it's, there, it's a huge resort now. Right. You know, golf courses and all that. I think, man, I'd love to go back there. <laughs> so it would be much more fun this time. Yeah. But I don't know if they still hand grenade fish or not. Was uh, Vietnam worth it? Well, you know, uh, yes. In my mind, it, uh, it w one can say, well, yeah, of course, we, many of us feel betrayed about the national right. leadership. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm not sure that the domino theory was not a true theory. And uh, I think we did hold the line against communism, you know, without it. Uh, Without the American will to be there and, and hold the communists off, you know, Laos, Cambodia, all of them would probably have been under the, under Chinese communist right. rule. Well, so, a, I, I mean, it's worth it in that regard. It's appropriate that you mention that because today today's the 30th anniversary of the wall falling. Yeah. So yeah, it, that's it, right. It's it's, uh, yeah, I've spent three years in Germany and used to... to go to East Berlin, right. you know, and that was quite an experience in those days. So you get back from Vietnam. Yeah. Um, what do you do next with your career? The, after the second time? After your second I went second to the, the advanced course, then I went to the real army. Okay. Uh, s sort of real, but it was the new volunteer army in the early 1970s in Germany, and the race and drug problems were just unimaginable. Uh, they were they were bad, and there was this this sense of permissiveness from you know battalion commanders probably had the worst deal because their hierarchy expected two things they they wanted to to make the environment more permissive and all that sort of thing and and uh you know let guys grow their hair longer and right. have posters on their wall and all that stuff, but at the same time they expected 
the operational readiness training tests and the you know the maintenance and and the stuff you need to yeah. fight wars with to right. to remain the same or improve and so so they were they were in a bind most of them from my experience turned around and said all right captain all right <laughs> you know you and your lieutenants get this shit straight you know and at the same time trying to to do that best example I have of that I was the first time I was a brigade duty officer in Mainz. It was a three battalion concern, uh, two battalions of the 509th Airborne Mechanized Infantry, and whoever thought of that idea should be in Leavenworth, <laughs> uh, and a tank battalion. And so I had brigade duty officer, and I went down to the theater. There was a, a theater on the concern, and as right. as most of us know, at the beginning of a film in military theaters, the national anthem played, people stand at attention while it played. So I get down there and just checking it out and the national anthem comes on and about half the guys are raising their fists. They're all in about three of them standing up out of the whole thing. I said, no, this, this ain't gonna do it, boys. So I went up on the, told the projectionist to stop, went up on the stage, said, all right, man, we're gonna do this again. You either get it right or I'm taking the damn film canisters and getting out of here. So he started it over. They same thing happened. I said, "That's it. When I got the, the you know those big old thirty-five millimeter right. two two tens of them, headed back to brigade headquarters. By the time I got back there, the duty NCO said, "Sir, you got to get back down to the theater. They're torn the seats up and they're throwing them up through the screen. You know." So I thought, "Man, this is not the special forces group. Right. This is." This is the real army, and it was tough. And we, uh, and I think for for my peers and I who stuck it out during that really difficult time of the early mid seventies, uh, I think that uh, I think we did as, as good a service as we did by going to Vietnam for a year or two. You know, right. simply by. Uh, overcoming things like McNamara's 100,000, where it was this disgraceful idea of sending people who who were really not mentally fit to to take right. care of themselves. Right. Uh, so we took care of them. Yeah. And there were some damn good ones among them. I mean, the, one of the most loyal radio operators I ever had was one of McNamara's boys. But we over we had to overcome a lot mainly the permissiveness from up on high i can remember being at uh bad Tolch where the 10th special forces group was and there sergeant major pialetti was the command sergeant major and a guy named oh blue max feistenheimer ludwig feistenheimer was the group commander and general michael davidson was the uh usurer commander u.s army europe commander okay. and he came down to bad Tolch because the nco academy for usurer was there too he comes down, does an inspection of the school and the barracks and all that, and he goes back to the airfield. And I happen to be catching a ride on that same aircraft to go back up country. And uh, Weissenheimer and Paletti stop, salute him. Weissenheimer says, General, now that you've been to Flint Concern and see what it is, see how squared away it is, you shouldn't have to come back. But if you do, please get a haircut because you're setting a bad example for my troops. <laughs> Saluted him and <laughs> walked off, and I thought, I got to get back at Special Forces, right? Which I did, even though it was bad for one's career. Yeah. 
So eventually you would find yourself part of um, something called Operation Eagle Call, correct? Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, as I said, I went back to Special Forces and uh, went went actually to the Special Forces. Well, I went back to Fifth Group and they just the colors had just returned from Vietnam. Then I went to the Special Forces School and had the Military Freefall Committee, the HALO Committee. Wasn't a very good skydiver, so I left there and went to, <laughs> I broke my back twice, and went to the Operations and Intelligence course and, the, and was a faculty advisor for the officers and a guerrilla chief on the unconventional warfare mm -hmm. exercise Robin Sage to have at the end. And uh, Colonel Charlie Beckwith, who had done a, an exchange with the British Special Air Service, had always wanted to have that sort of unit within the U.S. Army. Right. Well, he was the director of the Special Forces School by this time. And in 1977, when, uh, and he, he had his staff do some work on this proposal that he couldn't get it past, you know, the, the mid-level generals, basically. And then uh, there was an aircraft hijacked to Mogadishu, Somalia, in 77, the Lufthansa aircraft, and GSG-9, the German counter-terrorist unit, with help from two, two British SAS, uh, took the airplane back, released all the hostages, and then shot all the terrorists, one of them they didn't kill, but, you know, she was in the latrine, so that's okay. But anyway, apparently, uh, President Carter turned to his SecDef, Dr. Brown, and uh, said, we have this capability, don't we? And Brown says, I'll, I'll ask the, the chiefs. So he goes to the chiefs of staff and the Marine Corps said, well, of course, any Marine rifle company can do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the Navy said, well, we have SEALs, but they operate, you know, on the shoreline. And the Air Force says, we don't do that, but we can sure support it. Right. And the Army says, well, we have, we've reactivated a, a Ranger battalion. So, but that was the opportunity, and General Shy Meyer was the, was the uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations of the Army at the time, and he pushed this paperwork through, and on 19 November 77, they got authority to activate it. Well, I was by this time 34, 35 years old, and uh, Beckwith had sent a couple of guys to, to Britain to do the SAS course, and they didn't really do too well. I said, hey, Colonel. I can do this course, you know. He said, number one, you're too old, you know. <laughs> I said, well, you never know if you don't send me. Right. So he did. And I managed to struggle through, and as a result, I was one of the, uh, the first two officers he took with him to form what became known as the Delta Force. So that was a pretty good experience. So you're a founding member? No, there's only one founding member of the Delta Force, and that's Charlie Alvin Beckwith. Okay. But I happened to be there when he founded it. Okay. <laughs> but you were you were. I was there from the from day one, and for the next nine years. Okay. And uh, I had to, I was fortunate enough to, to command the first operational element for a couple of years. What what is the, what is their primary mission? I ain't telling you. <laughs> <laughs> it's to perform missions for the National Command Authority. Right. That's all. Next question. So how do you, so Operation Eagle Claw? Yeah. Tell, tell us about that. That's well, uh, it, actually, 40 years ago, right about now, yeah. 
is when we were gearing up to try to do something, we didn't know what we could do. I mean, you know, the the, uh, the Air Force couldn't get us there. Well, first, President Carter wanted to do everything taken off from the continental U.S. and returning without setting foot on foreign soil, and that's logistically impossible, you know, unless you'd gone in nuclear subs and had fold-up helicopters and flown into the embassy. They didn't have that stuff in those days, <laughs> except <laughs> in the movies. Right. So it was a very, and, and we didn't know whether they were going to start killing hostages the next day or one at a time, one a day and throwing them over the wall or what they're going to do. So we had to have two plans, an, an emergency plan. What, what would we do if, if uh, they did start misbehaving like that? Right. And the other plan is, if we have time to do some planning, what assets can we collect and what training can we do to prepare for it? But we always thought it would be within 10 days, you know. We never had, a, we never had the, the luxury of thinking, okay, three, by three months from now we can get this accomplished or this training accomplished or this support laid on. So anyway, to, to make a long story long, the... Uh, <laughs> We, it was a very complicated plan, and uh, we, and, and Beckwith knew that we were ready. I mean, we had we had trained for 18 months. We had undergone a national level uh, assessment with an exercise with the the unit right. doing two targets simultaneously, and did that successfully. And had had British uh, special force. I've had several foreign, yeah. excuse me, special forces observers, all of whom said, yeah, they're ready to go. The Air Force, at the, when, when it first started, uh, training safety had precluded the, the MC-130s, the combat talons, from doing night blacked out landings on dirt strips. I mean, that was just something to save the aircraft because, you know, there was no U.S. Special Operations Command then. Right. So the Special Operations Forces were competing with their services money right. to get what they what they thought they needed. And, and uh, a lot of times it was short strift, you know. The Army would say, well, we need another Special Forces group. And uh, the big Army would say, no, we need another dozen Abrams tanks. So you forget right. that. And same thing with the other services. Yeah. So we had the, the Air Force very quickly trained up. I mean, they went things to the wall to get it. To get the training accomplished, and did some amazing, did some amazing things with with NVGs and mm. night blacked out landings, and right. you know they, they did an amazing job. The there were no long range helicopters uh, capable of doing the operation, except in those days uh, the H-53s. The RH-53 is a Navy minesweeping helicopter that the tail boom folds on so they can put it on an elevator and take it below deck okay. so that the Nimitz could steam towards Iran and the, the Russian, Russians are still in Afghanistan, remember. <clears throat> the Russian recon aircraft couldn't, wouldn't see eight helicopters on the deck, you know, right. and let the Iranians know, hey, guess who's heading your way with eight right. choppers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we had to use them. but. It wasn't. It's not the machines. It's the. It's the man. You know. There's a certain mentality, right. that uh, that you have to have to to do that sort of work. And I honestly think that that uh, we forced these guys. I'm being kind now. 
I think we, we forced these guys to, who didn't have that mentality and who re, I really think did not think until they hit the coast of Iran that this mission was ever actually going to, right. to go. Uh, you know, we, we used them and that was, it didn't work. Uh, we can blame it on dust storms, we can blame it on a lot of things, but the point is it, it didn't work. The bad news is that we lost eight great airmen, uh, Air Force and Marine Corps, five airmen, three Marines. Uh, some of us feel politically that it was a success because we didn't get Jimmy Carter reelected and he would have gotten reelected if we'd been <laughs> successful that's probably. That's right. Cyrus Vance quit immediately. I always thought that was a plus, but that's just a personal right. opinion. But what really did come from it eventually was the formation of First uh, of, I guess JSOC is pretty well known now, the yeah. Joint Special Operations right. Command to, to, do, to coordinate the operations of all the, the Special Operations Forces. But the, really the biggest thing was a thing called MFP-11, Major Funding Program 11, which was a, their own money for, for Special Operations Forces. And of course, in order to have that you have to have somebody holding the purse, and so the the uh, U.S. Special Operations Command was founded, and uh, no longer do we have to compete with Abrams tanks when we needed something. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we got a little spoiled, to tell you the truth. But it it, it was very good until it, it, like all all headquarters, you know that the military is accused frequently of throwing money at problems. We don't do that. Right. We throw headquarters at problems, and then another headquarters is, is eventually becomes just another layer you have to go through to get the job done. And I think that's what we're we may be seeing now. Is that a is that a mission that most likely today is a success? Or eagle claw, an eagle claw type yeah, an mission. An eagle claw type oh, mission. Yeah, is that yeah. a successful mission today? Yeah, you look at and and a lot of them are still classified, of course, right. but. Uh, Al Baghdadi, right? You know, and and uh, even though the the seals did it, uh, Bin, Bin Laden, Laden and, and a number of other things that right. most many of which aren't in the public domain. Uh, yeah, these guys are so well trained, equipped, and and, and so well coordinated among the various services. Uh, and, and they all have selection courses. I mean, they all followed that right. that that Delta uh, that precedent that the Delta Force set. I think. Uh, and yeah, they can do amazing things. I mean, they are they go so far beyond what we had envisioned when Beckwith stood this outfit up. That uh, that's just amazing. It's a you know, people used to ask me, "What you know? What is, what is that outfit?" And when you when you boil it down to its essence, it's really simply the finest collection of non-commissioned officers ever assembled on the face of the earth. And I really, I really believe that. Yeah. And they get better all the time. Uh, they can do anything. You could tell them, you could take one of the operational elements and say, "Okay, guys, next week you're going to be an artillery battery." And they'd say, well, give us the guns and the manuals. We'll be there. And right. they would, you know. 
so so the loss of life is never good. No, it isn't. But out of that came something good. Oh yeah, and that yeah, and success. And, yeah, well, not just a military organization of it, but right. to me. And I have a personal stock in this now because I have a Air Force daughter who just had twins, whose husband is a Special Forces soldier, just back from Syria before the twins were born. So, so it's very personal. But as a result of, of Eagle Claw, which we'd always call Rice Bowl, I think somebody came up with Eagle Claw the day after. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. got to call it something. But it sounds good. Right. Yeah, we, we called it Rice Bowl all those months ahead of time. Right. That's okay. But uh, the formation of... Well, there were, I think, 13 kids, I can't remember the exact number, uh, of those who died in the desert that night. And so I don't even know who actually started it, but it was more than just passing the hat. Yeah. But, but the foundation was started that now is magnificent. The Special Operations Warrior Foundation, it's had like 14 straight years of the highest charity rating you can have. You know, overhead of less than uh, 10%. Uh, they have educated several hundred children whose special operations parents have, have been killed either in combat or died and killed in training. We, we take care of them too. Now, uh, thanks to guys like George Steinbrenner of the, of the Yankees, the late George Steinbrenner, and and Ross Perot and, and a lot of other people, but but even kid, my, when my daughter was an Air Force cadet, she she got her squadron to oh hey let's let's put our combined federal campaign right. money in the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, and it's a magnificent uh, it's a magnificent foundation. Right. They have a hundred there are hundred some kids in college now, right now, and and there, there was a young woman. Uh, Navy NCO who was attached to special operations was killed in, in uh, Iraq or Syria wherever she was uh, Shannon Kent and she's the first woman actually whose children will be recipients of it but we have now some special forces guys who were killed three of the wives were pregnant they're three unborn children and we're already tracking the found I say we the found out right foundation is tracking will track them all the way up or from uh, tuition uh, uh, what do you call it coaching academic coaching is yeah. called yeah mentoring and things like that yeah what's the other thing though I'm having a senior moment I am too <laughs> I'm not sure but, but I get your point yeah yeah but assist you know help them uh, with their education and right. and uh, follow them through and if they have you know any special needs they'll they'll take care of that and it's just it really is amazing. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there's still three or four hundred kids in the pipeline. Yeah. Uh, pretty prolific bunch of yeah. special ops guys. I, hear, I see that. <laughs> Tell us about Grenada. Oh, uh, Grenada. That was. Uh, Had you ever heard of Grenada before? Yeah, well, I'd heard of Grenada. You know, I knew it was one of the Lourdes or or whichever Windward or Lourdes Islands down there somewhere. But I didn't didn't know much about it. I knew nutmeg came from there, I think. Right. But uh, yeah, so we got a call from the newly formed Joint Special Operations Command that we were going to have to that there were some you know we were going to go liberate 
Grenada from the new communist government that had just taken over. Primarily because Castro was building an airfield, was, was changing their little airport into a long-range fighter and bomber-capable right. airfield. And, uh, and the, the main mission, I think, was to deny them that. Yeah. But there were also the students over at Grand Ants, or, you right. know, American kids. Medical students, talking about. Medical yeah. students, yeah. So we uh, thought, oh, we can handle this. And two Ranger battalions, my old outfit in the south, and some Navy SEALs, and then up north the Marine Corps, up at Pearls Airport, another airport. Uh, went in. Unfortunately, uh, we went in after daylight, which had not been the plan, but apparently the Marine CH-46s were not trained on night vision equipment, so they couldn't do a night assault, so okay. we, our guys had to wait for them. And even that got delayed, so that was broad daylight. And uh, a few of the Rangers got shot up parachuting in to secure the airfield, and our guys trying to, to go into Richmond Hill where the most of the bad guys and the the government hostages of the of the legitimate government were being held. Uh, so much triple A fire up there, twenty millimeter and twenty three millimeter that uh, the the Blackhawks made three or four passes trying to get in there and and couldn't get in. One of the pilots was killed. His his, well, he was the co-pilot, actually. His pilot was wounded, managed to crash land his. Uh, some of the others flew some of the 18 wounded we had out to the USS Guam, which was offshore. And It wasn't much of a, I mean, it was, you know, it was a, a very necessary operation. It didn't go very well because, of, because we should have gone at night and ended up going in the daylight. And I can remember that uh, General Vesey was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he came down, he had been to a briefing, and somebody said, oh, we, you know, Chief General, we're really sorry the Blackhawks are not, you know, didn't prove to be combat worthy or something because they couldn't get them in or something. And he came down and mentioned that, and I said, the hell are you talking about, sir? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> if they had been Hueys or 46s or 47s or 53s, there'd be bodies all over the hillside. That that. Blackhawk helicopter is a fine piece of equipment. Don't let anybody tell you differently. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it was. That's about, you know, people talk about lessons learned. Right. There aren't any new lessons learned. Very few, you know. It's almost all old lessons relearned. Relearned. Except, in this case, the, the combat worthiness of the Blackhawk helicopter was a lesson learned. That's about the only one. Is that the first... That was the Use first, first, right. yeah, first Black used Hawk. in combat of Blackhawks was Grenada, and they they proved, I mean, it was amazing. Some one of them had a transmission shot out, you know, right. flying on a dry transmission, flew out to the Guam, dropped the wounded off, and flew back to to Point Salinas and landed. And some of them had thirty and forty bullet holes in them, you know, right. up to twenty three millimeter. So it was, yeah, heck of an aircraft. Um, how much time did we spend in Grenada? Did you spend in Grenada? Well, I, we, my, my outfit just went down there, stayed one day basically, and I stayed behind. A couple of us stayed behind because we had 18 wounded on the Guam, and I didn't think we should be leaving till we got them back. So I just stayed, and uh, the Rangers 
had gotten most of the fighting done. But then the 82nd went down there, and uh, I think they had ran into a couple of snipers during the six weeks they were there or something. And when they gave 2,000 bronze stars out, <laughs> I shouldn't mention that, but that's what happened. I think the Rangers had one bronze star and a couple of Archon Vs, and you know, right. a silver star or two, and that was about it. We had a bunch of Purple Hearts, and that was about it. That's all we deserved, really. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a very long operation. It, it, you know, the, the first thirty-six hours, it was really over. Yeah. The rest of it was just there weren't even many many loose ends to tie up, you know. It was a good operation, actually. Right. E even though it was, we didn't we didn't get their objective initially as intended. Um, you were awarded the Silver Star. Yeah, you know. Somebody once said, you know. In fact, I, I wrote a book once and used this line, and it said, you know, this guy was in a bar, and, the, and this woman who knew metals looks at his chest and says. Uh, he was being somewhat self-effacing, and she looks at him and says, "Well, those uh, those ribbons on your chest tell a story." He said, "Yeah, but you never know whether or not it's true." <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I I guess I did all right, but I did better uh, after that and got a lower award. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference. I'm yeah. lucky to get anything. Right. At, at one point in my career, I thought, you know, officers shouldn't get medals. Officers should be in reserve for enlisted soldiers and NCOs. When, when did you retire? The last day of 1986. What was your rank when you retired? Lieutenant Colonel. Yeah, I had been passed over. You know, the, the old uh, Special Forces will ruin your career. <laughs> it was true. <laughs> but I had a guy, that, a, a general officer who... I'd been to a meeting. He said, "By the way, you're, I, when I'd been passed over for for uh, Lieutenant Colonel, he said you're supposed to be an 05." I said, "Don't tell me, General, it's your system," <laughs> which he didn't like. But he said, "Tell you, asked him to send me the papers. He sent them up." Right. And by then, General Myers, the chief of staff, they have uh, promotion boards that relook. Right. Promotions, you know, and they because the people are missing OERs or, or whatever. Yeah. So, and they'd already had one one of those standby boards. So Meyer calls another one, and these brigadiers and colonels or whoever goes to him, brought in, gave him one record, said we need you to reconsider this promotion. <laughs> so they did, and they had the authority to make it retroactive whatever day of that year they wanted. Yeah. They made it April Fool's Day. But I got promoted, so I'm not complaining. There you go. <laughs> when you look back on your career, is there anything that stands out? Yeah, yeah. The, you did uh, a lot, so what would Well, I mean, it just, uh, the, the, the opportunity to work with the best men on the planet. And the occasional woman, but, yeah. you know, very few women around in those days. There weren't yeah. many Shannon Kents and that, that sort right. of, but, but, yeah, the finest men on the planet. I. I still wake up some mornings and think, How, what did I ever do to deserve working with these right. great guys? And I, I, I'm glad I feel that way. Yeah. Um, the reason we do these videos is we want to preserve your story. 
somebody might watch this, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years in the future. What, what kind of message would you like to send that person? Could it, does it have to be text or can it tell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Will Cybergeddon have occurred? I hope so. Uh, who knows? <laughs> but no, I, I think the thing is that, that, that look at history, you know, uh, particularly military history of, the, of these United States, going back to right here where we are and particularly across the river in Gloucester where the real fighting went on during the right. Yorktown campaign. And, but to, to look at American military history and learn from it. Learn from those great leaders, including the ones who happened to go with the South. Yeah. But learn uh, what, what they were trying to tell us. You know, if you get, I, I think what I would say is, you know, the, the best general we probably ever had, who also happened to be the president the first two times, George Washington, wrote a farewell address mm -hmm. that uh, points out some things that, that we should be doing that we're failing to do. Uh, primarily, he, he spoke out against political partisanship. Right. So go back and learn history and you'll see that sort of thing all the way through. And if it's 20 or 30 years from now, there was this old guy named Mad Dog Mattis, General Jim Mattis, United States Marine Corps, who, uh, who was one of the best teachers we had during during my right. latter years, so go back and study him too. How do you think, um, reflecting on your career, how has your combat experience affected your life? Well, I'm deaf as a clam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I grew up, you know. I was I was still pretty well, hadn't grown up till 26 November 1977 is when I really grew up. That was when I was the last round I standing that day, and and then you know you learn values, the the values that you get that one hopes they can pass on to to other people. And the older I get, the more I realize how much, whether it's in a combat situations, post combat situations, the handling of of, of enemy dead and wounded right. of civilians, kindness. Kindness it should be one of the first virtues that a, that a soldier is extolled for and, right. and should be in them, you know, kindness. Yeah. Which may be a strange thing for an old Special Forces <laughs> guy to say, but, yeah. but it's true. Well, on behalf of the Americans in Wartime Museum, I thank you for sitting down and talking to us, telling us. Well, it's your my story, pleasure. And I appreciate your service. I hope I didn't bore you too you much. You did not. You did not. And uh, as, as General Mattis says, when anybody says thank you for your service, you tell them thank you for being worth it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I want to give you a challenge coin. Just well, I a appreciate it. Token of our appreciation. I'll use it in the bar in All a right. few minutes. There you go. Hey, thanks. <laughs> thank I appreciate it. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime Experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.